Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome out to Grace Church here at the Medina East Campus as we are continuing in a series we started last week that we are calling Questioning uh, Jesus. And so thanks so much for being here on this uh, Daylight Savings Sunday. I'm pretty sure that there is a special place in in heaven for you uh, for making it on Sunday morning during Daylight Savings. So thanks so much for being here. We're glad you're here. And uh, if you missed last week, or kind of like what Tommy said, if you're a guest with us here this morning, I just want to tell you how grateful we are that you're here. We count it an absolute honor and privilege uh, that you would carve out some time, that you would spend that with us here. So thanks for being here. But if you missed last week and you kind of missed the beginning of, uh, of this series, essentially what we're talking about in this series together, Questioning Jesus, is we are just simply looking at some of the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked. And so, so last week, if you were here, you might remember we said that throughout the Gospels, there's actually some pretty staggering things that we find uh, as it relates to Jesus and uh, questioning, how Jesus asks questions. So here's what we found last week together. We said that, man, throughout the Gospels, the, the, the first four books of the New Testament, which are kind of like the biographies of the life of Jesus, we said that Jesus asked a staggering 307 questions. And so throughout the Gospels, we find that, man, Jesus asked a mind-blowing amount of questions. In comparison to that, we said what's also interesting is that throughout the Gospels, Jesus himself was only asked 183 questions. And so by and large, whenever Jesus was in conversations, he was the one that was doing most of the questioning and the conversations that we was in. And what we said was really interesting was that of those 183 questions that Jesus was asked, that he rarely gave a direct answer. Uh, that oftentimes, we talked about this last week, Jesus would often answer a question with a question. Uh, sometimes he would answer a question with a parable, which a parable is kind of like a story, and he would oftentimes do that. And so last week we said that, man, this is really fascinating. Jesus asked so many questions, and Jesus oftentimes would answer questions with questions, which caused us to ask a question. And the question that we were asking last week was, why does Jesus ask so many questions? What was behind that? Why, why does Jesus approach conversations that way? And what we said last week is we said that most probably the reason that Jesus asked so many questions is not because he was seeking information, right? It wasn't like Jesus just needed to know more stuff. The reason that Jesus was asking questions, we said, is most probably because his goal was transformation. See, so we said that Jesus understood, I think, what many of us maybe have learned, and that is the power and, the, and just the value of a great question. I think all of us know that questions have the ability to help us see through things. They have the ability to help us see two motivations that sometimes we're not necessarily aware of. I think all of us understand that there is nothing that can cause a mental turnaround like that of a great question. Uh, Great questions can oftentimes uh, make that happen. It's one of the greatest teaching tools uh, that we have is that of questions. I think Jesus knew that, and I think that many of us have maybe learned that. In fact, it's interesting, recently there's been some uh, behavioral uh, studies that have been done by behavioral scientists that basically affirm what Jesus' uh, approach and question uh, asking. And so there was this one study that was done just a couple, a couple years ago, I thought it was really interesting, back in 2015, where behavioral scientists basically were trying to study how do you help evoke change in the lives of people who don't want to change? It's kind of what they were studying together in behavior science. And so what they did was they did two different experiments, kind of two different approaches to the same demographic. And so here's what they did. They got a group of kids together, uh, 11, 12-year-old kids, and basically they sent them out in the streets and with, with, with flyers in hand to go speak directly to smokers. And so they said smokers are, are typically, you know, usually people, maybe you're in, in this category too, who oftentimes you know the negative health benefits that go along with it, and yet there's not a willingness to stop or not a willingness to quit. So they said this would be kind of a great 
community to go after. And so they did this. And so the, they sent these kids out with these flyers in hand, and they would go up to these smokers. Here was the first approach. In the first approach or in the first experiment, these kids would go up and they were scripted to say certain things. And this is what they would say. So they would go up to a smoker on the street, to an adult, these kids with these flyers, and they would say, hey, did you know that smoking is bad for you? And invariably, every adult responded, yeah, I know. And most of them, they responded very annoyed. Yeah, I know. And then they went on to, the the next thing that they were scripted to say was they went on to give a big, long anti-smoking lecture. And so they they would give a lecture to the adult. Well, you know, if you continue smoking, it increases the chances of emphysema. It increases your chances of cancer. It will shorten your life expectancy. There's an unpleasant smell that's associated with it. And they would just give this whole lecture of why you shouldn't smoke. And it's fascinating. You can actually watch this this experiment uh, online. The whole video and stuff is available. It's interesting to watch how annoyed these adults' kids, as you can imagine, right? This kid is just lecturing them on why they shouldn't be smoking. So then at the end of the lecture... These kids would then take a flyer and they'd practically shove it in the hand of the adult. And what what they would do is they would say, here's a hotline you can call if you want to quit. And here's some more information. If you call that, they'll they'll help you get some next steps and whatever. And what they found was that 100% of those people did not call that hotline. Most of them didn't even take the flyer, even though it was practically put in their hand. And those who did take the flyer, they found that they would crumple it up and throw it away after the kids left. All right, so that was the first approach, the first experiment. Second experiment, they sent the same kids out on a different day with the same flyers in their hands. But this time they approached it differently. And so they sent the kids out with a fake cigarette in their hands. And so these kids would approach the adults and here's what they were scripted to say. They would go to the adult and they would start by saying, hey, can I bum a light off of you? Right, can, you can you give me a light? Can you light my smoke? And, and every time, thank God, the adult's response was no. And this was the question that they were scripted to ask afterwards. Why not? And and the most fascinating thing happened. They said that these adults, the ones who were smoking, went on to give the anti-smoking lecture to the kids. And so they would say, listen, you don't want to smoke, man. It causes emphysema. It causes cancer. It's going to shorten your life expectancy. You want to be healthy, right? So don't smoke. And they would basically plead with this child, don't do this, all right? You don't want to live this way, all right? And then this was the final question that the kids were scripted to ask. And this was kind of like the big one, is the kids would look and say, okay, they would say, well, if you care so much about us, then what about you? And then they would take a flyer and they would say, here's a flyer with more information. There's a quit hotline. You can call that if you would like to to, to pursue help. And what they found was that 100% of the adults not only took the flyer, but they also found that that day that they did this experiment, that that quit hotline increased by 40% on the calls that they received. Now, we don't know if those people went on to quit smoking or not, but what the behavioral scientists said is they kind of concluded this. They said, listen, if you really want to evoke change, behavioral change in people, life change, they said oftentimes the way that that happens is not by amassing more information. See, for most of us, I believe what we need is probably not more information. A lot of us got a lot of information, but they said in this study, they said what we, what we usually need is we need better questions, better questions that help us really kind of look to the motivations of our own heart that will ultimately lead to transformation. See, and I believe that this is why Jesus asked so many questions. I think Jesus knew this. See, I think that Jesus's goal was not to convey more information. I think Jesus's goal was life transformation. And so because of that, Jesus employed questions to really help us understand our hearts, to cause us to ask the right questions 
and to make us to kind of look more deeply into ourselves. So what we've been doing in this series then is we have been looking at some of the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked. And each week we're looking at a different question. And again, our goal in this series is not to amass more information. Our goal in this series is that hopefully as we consider these questions and we contemplate these questions and we ask ourselves these questions that Jesus asked, that it might lead to transformation in a way that maybe we've never seen before. Uh, that Jesus might use these questions in our life uh, to really dig down into our hearts. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a second question. So last week, if you were here, you might remember we looked at, at the first question together. And I would encourage you, by the way, if you missed last week's conversation and you'd like to catch up on that, uh, you can go to our website. Uh, you can listen to, uh, the, to, the, to the audio there. Or you can download the video. You can subscribe to our podcast if you want to. All of that is for free. All of that is for you. And we would encourage you to do that. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the second question. We're going to look at a really weird question that we're going to find. And we're going to find that in John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, if you take them out with me, why don't we turn together to John chapter 5, all right? And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you here this morning, that is not a problem at all. Uh, We actually have some Bibles that should be under the chairs for you or uh, in front of you. And those black Bibles, so you can grab those Bibles. Turn to page 742 in those black Bibles. That's where you're going to find John chapter 5. So I'd encourage you to kind of flip there, all right? And of course, let me just say, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, like if you don't have a Bible of your own, we think it's super important that you have one. And so you could just take one of ours, all right? Make that a gift from us to you. We want you to have a Bible. It's be an awesome thing. So John 5, go ahead and get there. As you're flipping to John 5, let me just give us a little bit of context as to what it is that we're going to be jumping into here in this passage. Okay, so in John chapter 5, we are going to see the account of a man who had been sick for 38 years, who experiences a miraculous healing from Jesus. So it's an awesome story. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with this or maybe vaguely familiar with this story. Now, if you're a person that is unfamiliar with the Bible, let me just give you what you need to know about the Gospel of John before we jump into this. So, So if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Gospel of John is called a gospel because it's basically like a biography of the life of Jesus, okay? And the guy who writes it is a guy named John. Now, John was a disciple of Jesus, and so that meant that he would have spent a lot of time with Jesus. He would have heard Jesus' teaching. He would have seen Jesus perform his miracles. He would have had eyewitness exposure to the life of Christ in a unique way that many people didn't. In fact, commentators believe that John may have been the closest person to Jesus while he was here on this earth. So this is a close friend of Jesus, a guy who knew him intimately, and he's writing a biography about the life of Jesus. That's what you're looking at when you're looking at the Gospel of John. Now, the way that John organizes his Gospel Uh, the Bible kind of shows is that he does this uh, around what is sometimes called sign miracles, all right? Now, you got to kind of stick with me here because this is going to be important a little bit later. But the way that the Gospel of John is organized is that there are seven sign miracles that happen, and the entire book of John is kind of organized around those sign miracles. Now, here's what you need to know, okay? A sign miracle, a definition of that would be this. It is an actual miraculous event, So this is something that really happened. What we're about to see here in John chapter 5 is something that really happened. However, it's it's an actual miraculous event, but it also conveys a deeper spiritual truth, all right? So all the sign miracles that we see throughout the gospel of John, they're real events that took place, but they have a deeper spiritual meaning to them. The gospel of John is written with a lot of symbolism in it, and so I want us to remember that because that's going to be important as we look at this passage together. So I'll show you that here in a second. But for our sake, let's go ahead and start in verse 1, John chapter 5, verse 1. Here we go. All right. 
Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. So Jesus is doing his ministry. He's going around teaching and preaching. He's got his disciples with him. And the Bible says in John chapter 5, he and his disciples come to the place of Jerusalem. Now, many of you might know Jerusalem back in this time was kind of like the religious capital of the Jewish world. And so when a Jewish person wanted to worship God, when a Jewish person wanted to offer sacrifices, the place that they would go to do that was they would go to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem was the temple. And and all of those spiritual practices would kind of happen at the temple, okay? So Jesus and his disciples come into Jerusalem, verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Okay, so John is starting to paint for us a little bit of a picture of the setting. So here's the setting, they're in Jerusalem, and you notice the Bible says that they're walking along by the sheep gate, that's what the Bible says, and they found a pool. So notice, by the sheep gate, there was a pool. Now I don't know about you, But at least at first glance, it seems to me, by the way that this is worded, my first thought was, sounds like bad placement for a pool, right? That's my first thought. Because here you have a sheep gate, right? And if you have a sheep gate, that probably means you have sheep. And if you have sheep, usually means you have bad odors. And if you have bad odors, it means you have things that cause bad odors that came from the sheep. And if you have those things, you probably don't want those next to your pool. That's what I'm thinking, right? And so when I read that, I thought, probably not a great placement. But what is this all this about? Well, basically, if you guys are familiar with Jerusalem, there are many gates to enter into the city of Jerusalem. The Sheep Gate was actually one of them. And there was a pool that was by this gate, apparently, the Bible tells us. And then it gives us a little bit more description. Notice it says that this was surrounded by five covered colonnades, this pool was. Some of you might be thinking, what in the world is a colonnade? Well, if you have a different translation, it might say portico, or it might say porch. Basically, what it was is it was a covered area. It would have been a place that had a roof over the top of it. So the Bible says this pool had these five porches that kind of surrounded it, is what it kind of explains. And Jesus kind of walking into this scenario. Now, quick aside, sort of fascinating, um, this pool has actually been discovered by archaeologists, the Pool of Bethesda, in the late 19th century. So for the longest time, people believed that this thing didn't exist. But then in the late 19th century, archaeologists dug this thing up. They found this pool. It was next to the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, just as uh, John actually says. And you can actually go visit this today. In fact, let me show you a picture real quick. Uh, this is an uh, uh, artist rendition of what this would have looked like when it was intact. Now, if you were to look at it today you would see that it's pretty much just rubble. That's, that's pretty much what it is. But, but you can kind of see, it, you can see that it was basically two basins that were connected. And you can see there were five colonnades that would have kind of connected five different porches or porticos that would have been there. The fascinating thing about this they discovered is that the way that this was filled was through a, a subterranean stream that would fill this thing and it would kind of fill from the bottom up. That's kind of how it worked. And so this is a real place, kind of fascinating. You can actually go and visit this in Jerusalem. And so this is where Jesus is. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. He comes to this pool, the Bible says. And now the passage is going to zoom in. And we're going to pay attention to one guy in particular. So check this out. Verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And so the Bible kind of shows us here that this was no average pool. This was not a leisure pool. This wasn't a pool that you would go to swim laps. The Bible tells us that this was a pool that people who had physical infirmities, who had physical disabilities would gather. Now, why in the world would people who had these physical infirmities and these physical disabilities come here? Well, actually, the Bible explains to us, gives a little more description in verse 4. So I want you to glance down at your Bibles. I want you to notice verse 4. You notice verse 4 in your Bible there? 
Some of you might not notice verse, you might notice in your Bible that you have no verse four. You guys notice that? Just out of curiosity, when you looked at your Bible, how many of you do not have a verse four in your Bible? Yeah, pretty much all of us, and if you're not raising your hands because you don't have a Bible in front of you. There, there is no verse four in your Bible. Now, why is there no verse four in your Bible? Well, the only Bible that contains a verse four is the King James Version, the old King Jimmy, as I like to call it. It's the only one that actually has a verse four. Now, why is that? Well, here's why. Because the oldest manuscripts and the most reliable manuscripts that we have in the New Testament do not contain a verse four. Uh, the only translation that has verse four is the King James Version, and it is thought that the, because the most original versions don't have uh, the, a verse four, that verse four was later added by a scribe to try to give further explanation to why these people were here. If you had a verse four, what would it say? Well, here's what verse four would say if you had it. It would say, and they waited for the moving of the water from time to time. An angel of the Lord would come down and would stir up the waters. And the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease that they had, okay? So what what verse four does is it explains to us a legend or a superstition that existed around this pool. And the legend was that whenever the waters bubbled up, remember I told you that there was a subterranean stream that would have kind of fed this thing. So whenever the waters would bubble up, there was this folklore, this legend, or there was this myth that, man, the first one in gets healed. And so because of that superstition and because of that legend, there's a bunch of people who had physical infirmities and had physical disabilities that would come to this place to be healed. So Jesus comes into this setting, and then the Bible says in verse 5, there was one who was there that had been an invalid for 38 years. So the Bible kind of focuses in on this one guy. And the Bible says Jesus walks in the snare. There's this one guy, and the Bible says that he was an invalid for 38 years. Now, the word invalid, some of you guys might have different translations. It might say that he had an infirmity. It might say that he had an illness. And the word that's used here for invalid is actually a very general term. It just means sickness. So we don't know what this guy had. We don't know what was wrong with him. We just know that he had a physical infirmity of some type. And what we do know is that it was a very long-standing one. He had this for 38 years. He had been in this condition. Now, that is a long time by any standard. But especially back in this time, this was longer than the average life expectancy of a man back in Jesus' time. So no doubt, the majority of his life, this man had been in this condition where he had an illness or he had an infirmity of some type. Okay, so, so Jesus sees this guy. And Jesus is going to go on in the next verse, in verse 6, and he's going to proceed to interact with this guy. And he is going to ask him one of the most bizarre, one of the strangest questions I think is in the entire Bible. So check this out, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, here's the question that Jesus asked, guys, so strange. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Uh, Now, I don't know about you, but at first glance, that seems like a really strange question, really bizarre question. I, I grew up people telling me there's no such thing as a stupid question. Maybe you've had people say that to you before as well. I'll just tell you, when I first read this, I remember thinking to myself, man, that seems like a dumb question. Why would you, does it seem like an obvious question? Of course the guy wants to get well. This dude's been in this condition for 38 years. The reason he is at that pool is because he's believed some legend that if he gets in, he's gonna get, of course the dude wants to get well. Why would Jesus ask that question? It seems obvious at best, and it seems insensitive at worst. Why would Jesus ask a question like this? But here's the thing. I think though it might strike us like that at first, if you think about this question, if you process it a little bit, you come to realize this is actually a really profound question. 
This is actually a really important question, especially when you're talking about someone who has a long-standing, it's been, been long-standing in a place of brokenness or a place of unhealth. I think this is a really, really important question. And so Jesus comes up to this guy who's been sick for 38 years next to this pool. And he comes up to him and he asks him the most bizarre question. He says to him, do you want to get well? And before we move on and talk about what happens next, because as I said, what we're going to see happen is we're going to see this man get healed by Jesus in a miraculous way. But before we go on and look at the rest of the story, I think it's important that we pause for a minute and we take this question that Jesus asked and we turn to those of us in this room and we ask the same question. Now, now let me clarify for a minute. I mentioned to you earlier that what we see in John chapter 5 is a sign miracle, all right? And so what is a sign miracle again? Let me just reiterate. A sign miracle is an actual miraculous event that conveys a deeper spiritual truth. Now, why is that important for us to know? Here's why. I do not want you to hear me say it. Let me just be clear. I am not saying, not saying. Right? Everyone say not saying. I'm not, okay, I'm not saying that if you are a person who has a longstanding physical uh, infirmity, physical disability, that if you have an illness or, or, or if you find yourself, in, you have a life-threatening disease of some type, that the reason that you are in that condition is simply because you don't want to get better. Right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you're in a place like that, it's because it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. And if you just prayed more and if you just believed more, then everything would be okay. And I need to say that because honestly, there's a lot of abuse around this. And there are some people who will take a passage like this and they will tell you that if you just have enough faith and if you just believe a little harder, then God, it's your fault that you're in the circumstance that you're in because of your physical illness or because of the disease you have. And I just need to be upfront and just tell you that is garbage, all right? Just garbage. However, when we read a passage like this, we have to remember this is a sign miracle because it's a sign miracle, it really happened. This is an event that really took place but it also conveys a deeper spiritual truth. John is trying to communicate a deeper spiritual truth to us through this. And what is that spiritual truth? Well, I think this is the way we need to approach this, all right? In the Bible, the Bible explains that you and I have a spiritual condition aside from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, the Bible would say that you and I are spiritually sick, all right? Because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our dysfunction, the Bible will look and say, we are not healthy in our relationship with God. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say, but this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, uh, would, would say about our condition that we are spiritually blind, that we are spiritually deaf, that we are spiritually lame. These are the words the Bible would use to describe our situation. So if you think of the pool of Bethesda and you think about all these people who are coming around who have all of these infirmities, spiritually speaking, we are in the same condition. All right? And so because that's the case, here's what I think we need to think about. All right? And here's the question I would ask you to process through right now. What longstanding struggle is hindering you from a healthy relationship with God? All right, so let me just ask you that question. I want you just to think about this in your own heart, and your own mind. Let's ask you, what longstanding, what ongoing, what perpetual, what perpetual habitual struggle do you have in your life that is hindering you from a healthy relationship with God? I just want you to think about that for a minute. And here's the thing. I can't answer that for you. I can't, I don't know that, but you do, right? And my guess is that for every single one of us in this room, myself included, if I think about this, I can think of things that I would say, these are long-standing, ongoing struggles 
that are keeping me from being in a healthy relationship with God. Now, like I said, I can't answer that for you, but maybe, for example, maybe for you, it's an addiction issue of some type. A habitual addiction issue that you might be facing could be a substance thing. I don't know, it could be a sexual thing, could be pornography, but it is an ongoing struggle that you have not been able to find success in. It has been a long, ongoing struggle that continues to keep you from a, a healthy relationship with God, and it has persisted in your life for a long time. It's something that's there. Maybe for you, that's what, might, what it might be. Uh, maybe for you, it might be a relationship thing. Uh, maybe there is ongoing bitterness, ongoing resentment uh, around a person or an event or an abuse, something that's happened to you in the past, and, and there's resentment and, and, and unforgiveness and bitterness that exists in your life as a result of that. And it's ongoing and it's perpetual and it's habitual. It's something that you have lived with for a very long time, all right? Now, again, I don't know what it is, but my guess is if you think about it, you probably have an answer to this question. There's a long-standing struggle that's hindering you from a healthy relationship with God. All right, now, here's the question I think Jesus wants us to ask this morning. If you think about this, however you might answer this question, Here's the question I think Jesus would ask us. Do you want to get well? Do you, do you really want to get better? Now notice Jesus isn't asking, do you need to get well? That is not the question he's asking. Do you want to? And when you think about that, that struggle in your life, when you think about that thing that's hindering you from God, do you really want to get well? And again, I love this question. And the reason I love it so much is because I think it, for, for many of us, if, if, you, if you answer it honestly, it takes you by surprise, doesn't it? I mean, you're like, wow, I just wasn't expecting that question. And it causes us to really search our motivations of our own heart. It causes us to really look deep into ourselves. Because I love, I love this question so much because I think for many of us, our initial reaction to this is, yeah, yes, I, yeah, I want to get well. I think that's our initial response. But I think if you really think about it, do you really want to get well? See, all of a sudden we realize that there is more than just one question that's being asked here. So one of the questions I think that this, this question insinuates is this. Do you want to change? See, when Jesus says, do you want to get well to this man who has been sick for 38 years, one of the questions that he is asking within that question is, do you want to change? Do you really want to change? So here you've got a guy who's been in this situation for 38 years, undoubtedly. This is all that this guy knows. This is the life that he is used to. He has probably got accustomed to managing and living life with this infirmity that he, is, that he has had for the past 38 years. And so when Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? Part of what he's asking him is he's saying, listen, are you willing to leave that which has been familiar to you for the, for, for the majority of your life and enter into a new reality? Do you really want to change? Because my guess is that this guy has learned to adjust. He has learned to adapt. He has learned to compensate for this thing in his life. See, because here's something that I've learned. I've learned that, that as it relates to ongoing struggles that many of us face, that for some of us, we have gotten really good at compensating for it. And we have gotten really good at accommodating and adapting that now it's just a normal part of who we are. I was thinking about this this week, and I, I, I couldn't help but think of my, my little daughter and so some of you guys know I have, I, me and my wife have three kids. So we got two boys that are five and are six and seven. And then we have a little princess, just our, our one little girl. And she's 13 months right now. And so this month she's going to turn 14 months. And, uh, and so it's just kind of fun. She's our only girl. So she gets spoiled rotten and she's awesome in every way. And she's never sinned, which is great. And she's just a wonderful, 
little girl, but she's not, um, she's actually not walking yet. And, and that's not a surprise. My kids are all, they're all kind of late walkers. And so it's not a surprise. But notice I said she's not walking yet. I didn't say she can't walk. She can. She just doesn't want to. And so whenever, we've seen her do it. We've seen her walk. But whenever she does, you could just tell she's aggravated. She cries. She, she just wants you to hold her the whole time. So she just doesn't really walk. And, and it's not, again, it's not because she can't. It's just because she won't. She just doesn't want to. So what she has done to kind of accommodate or to compensate for her inability to walk right now is she just scoots herself around on her bottom. And she is getting pretty proficient at this. It's kind of fun to watch. So she will just get around by scooting herself on her bottom, like around the carpet. And it, oh, it's, it's awesome to watch because it looks like she's kind of doing this weird version of the worm. And she's gotten real good at it. I mean, she, has, she, she is um, highly competent in scooting herself around. It's amazing how proficient she is at this. And so we watch her do this. But as her dad... I, I keep trying to get her to walk, you know? I'm like, I want you to walk. And so whenever she's doing the butt scoot thing, I try to get her back up and I try to get her to walk and I'll try to bribe her. I'll bribe her with snacks. I'll bribe her with toys, right? I'll, I'll applaud for her when she's walking and then when she doesn't, I'll punish her. No, I'm just kidding. And I just, but I'll do all that kind of stuff because I want her to walk, right? I want, because I know as her dad, there's a whole new dimension of freedom that is available to her if she would walk. I know that there's, a, there's a, a whole new world of possibilities that is available to her if she would walk, but she just doesn't want to. And she has just become content in scooting herself. She has learned to adapt. She has learned to compensate. And so she drags herself around the floor. Now listen, I think for some of us, quite honestly, we have learned to do the same thing. And there has been a struggle that's been a part of our life for so long. There's been an issue that has been keeping us from a healthy relationship with God for so long. And what we have done is we have just learned to accommodate. We have learned to manage. We have just learned how, how, to, how to adapt to life with that thing. And it's just become a normal part of who we are. So to be specific, and maybe for some of you right now, you are a high-functioning addict. You are a high-functioning alcoholic. And so maybe you're a person where you don't necessarily like where it is. You know that you have an unhealthy attachment to this substance for, in, for some way, in, in, some, in some way, but you're high functioning. And so, man, you, you have learned how to hide the receipts. You have learned how to hide the bottle. And, and, and even though it's, it, it's, it's affecting your health and it might even be affecting your relationships professionally, you are high functioning. And you have just learned to get used to it. It is a normal part of who you are. And so you've learned to compensate for it. It's become an average part. And I think Jesus might look at you and he might say, listen, do you want to get well? Do you really want things to change? Or is it just easier? Is it just manageable the way it is? It's just a normal part of, this is how I've been for so long. And do we want to change? And maybe for some of us, like I said, maybe it's the porn thing. And maybe there's been an ongoing porn addiction that you've been facing in your life. And, and maybe when you first came to know Jesus, and I know, of course, not everyone in this room does follow Jesus. But for, for those of us who do, maybe you started following Christ. And at first, there, there, was, a, there was a passion and there was a, 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 there was a, a sense of despair to see this addiction gone in your life. But after failing continually, you came to realize that, man, there's no victory. And all of a sudden, you resigned yourself. And you just said, well, it's just the way it is. And so you've learned to manage, you've learned to adapt. And you don't necessarily like it, but you're used to it. 
And so you've learned to manage it, and it's something that you're very proficient at. You know how to uh, eliminate and, and delete your history. You know how to hide it and to not get caught. You're really good at it. And you just got, I think Jesus might look at us today, and he might say, listen, do you want to get well? Do you really want things to change? Really? Or have, or have you just learned to kind of manage life as is? For some of us, like, it could be a million things. For some of you right now, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe your marriage has been flatlined for a really long time. And honestly, there's been no intimacy. There's been no spiritual growth for a long time in your marriage. And you don't like it, but man, you've gotten used to it. And you and your spouse, you've learned how to be really good roommates. You've learned how to coexist really well. But it's just, man, there's, there, there, it's just normal for you. It's normal. Jesus would say, listen, do you really want things to change? Or are you just used to the way that is? Because sometimes it's just easier to keep things the way that they are. It could be the bitterness thing, the resentment thing. Maybe, maybe for you're holding on to resentment, you're holding on to bitterness, and you've been holding on to that for so long. Hurt, bitterness, resentment towards others or towards God because of an event that took place. And maybe for you, you've been holding on to that thing for so long that it has become part of you. And you can't imagine what life would be without it. You're just used to it. It's a normal part of who you are. You've been living this way for so long. And I think Jesus might look and say, listen, do you really want to overcome this bitterness? Do you, really want to, do you really want to change? Or is it easier? Is it easier for you just to distance yourself from those people and cling on to your bitterness and resentment? Is it just easier to do that? Do you really want to change? Is it, do, do you really want to overcome your hurt? Or is it easier just to sit in isolation and self-pity? Is it just easier? Because here's something that I've found to be true in my own life, and maybe you guys have found this to be true. Here's what I've learned. It's easier, oftentimes, not to change. It's just easier. And once I get used to a habit in my life, used to those type of things, it's easier not to change. What I have found um, in my experience is that most people want the results of change they want things to change, but they don't want to change. And I can just say for myself, a lot of times I want things to change. I want the results to change, but I don't want to change because it's easier not to change. And we get so used to having something in our life for so long that it becomes a part of who we are. And what can happen is that we get um, institutionalized in our brokenness. It reminds me a little bit of, did you guys ever see the movie, The Shawshank Redemption? It was the movie, one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption. And uh, there's a scene that I thought was so good in that movie. Um, if, you, if you saw the movie, you might recall there was a character named Brooks Hatlin. Brooks is the guy over here on the right. And uh, in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, Brooks is a guy who, who uh, apparently committed a crime when he was a young man, got arrested, uh, went to Shawshank Prison, and then spent 50 years at Shawshank. And so after being in Shawshank Prison for 50 years, he finally got released. And in the movie, it's really fascinating because when he finds out he's going to get released, what he does is he tries to commit another crime to get him back at the prison because he does not want to leave. And what's really interesting is there's this one scene where Morgan Freeman's character, Red, is talking about his buddy Brooks. And here's what he says. This is the quote from uh, Morgan Freeman's character in the movie The Shawshank Redemption. He says, I'm telling you, these walls are funny, talking about the prison walls. First, you hate them, then you get used to them, and enough time passes and you get so that you depend on them. And that's what institutionalized, that's what it means to be institutionalized. And, and when I read that, I just thought to myself, you know, I think for some of us, that might be the very same place that we're in. When Jesus says, do you want to change? Do you want to be well? Do you really want things to change? For some of us, what we really find inside of us 
is that the, the struggles that we faced, at first we hated them, and then we got used to them, and over enough time we realized that we start to define ourselves by them. And they actually become a part of who we are. And we, we see that here's a man who's been sick for 38 years, and Jesus asks him the most bizarre question. I think it's such a good question. He says, do you want to get well? I love the way this guy responds to Jesus' question. Look at verse 7. This is really interesting how he responds to him. He says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. I love this guy's answer. Do you notice that this guy answers a question that Jesus never asked? You notice this. Jesus says, do you want to get well? But it seems like the question that this guy is answering is, um, why aren't you well? Because you notice what he says. He says, man, you know, I want to get in, but I have no one to help me get in to the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, look, someone else always goes down ahead of me. You notice what's happening. One of the things I love about this question, do you want to get well, is that what it often does is it exposes the story or the narrative that we tell ourselves and we tell others that excuse ourselves for reasons why we can't change. This is exactly what happens with this guy. He says, do you want to change? He's like, well, you know, no one's helping me. And every time I, someone else always gets ahead of me. And I think Jesus will look at him and say, that's not the question I asked you. That's not what I asked. See, for some of us this morning, I ask you the same thing. I'd say, man, do you want to change? Do you really want to change? That habit, that addiction, that thing that's keeping you from the bitterness. That, and you might say to me, but you don't understand that person, that event, that thing, they, they never, he never, she didn't. And I think Jesus would say, that is not what I'm asking you. That's not what I'm asking you. Do you want to change? Do you want to get well? And so Jesus goes on in this next, in this next verse and does just the absolute mind-blowing, performs a miracle. Look at verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And look at this, this is awesome. At once, the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. Here, a man who had been sick for 38 years. And the Bible says he has one encounter with Jesus, one encounter, and at once, 38 years is erased and the man can get up and he can walk in a way that he never has before. Amazing, amazing miracle. Now, you guys, I believe that this passage has a lot to teach us. There's a lot of application in this passage. But I think for us this morning, here's the big thing that we see in this passage and the big question we need to ask to ourselves. Here it is. This passage reveals to us that Jesus is willing and able to bring healing to your brokenness. Listen, I think for some of you, you just need to process that because maybe you just don't believe that. Maybe you've been so caught in the struggle for so long that you've just learned, man, I, I'm never getting over this. This is just the way it is. Nothing's ever going to change. We'll just hold it right there because this passage reveals to us, no, man, Jesus is willing. He wants to. He is willing and he is able. Able. How able? Really able, right? I mean, geez, how, how much can Jesus heal? What is, what is the capacity of Jesus' healing power exactly? Well, how about this? Up to eternal life. Jesus, Jesus can heal us up to salvation. So Jesus is willing and he is able to bring healing to your brokenness, to your broken marriage. Jesus is willing and he is able to bring healing to your, to your addictions, to your broken relationships, to, your, to, to the unforgiveness and the resentment. He is willing and he is able 
to bring healing in those places. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are you willing to let him do that? Are you willing to allow Jesus to move? He is willing and he is able to. But I think what Jesus knows, what most of us know, and that is that you cannot help someone who just does not want to be helped. And so do you want to get well? Do you want change to happen? So maybe another way to phrase the second question, this might be a helpful way to think about it. Here's, here's a way to think about it. Are you willing to, to utilize Jesus's, um, Jesus's answers to our brokenness? Are you willing to use Jesus's solutions, to pursue Jesus's solutions to our brokenness? Are you willing to do that? So here's what I mean by that specifically. For some of you, when I say, man, are you willing to let Jesus, he's willing and able to, to bring healing to you? Are, you? are you willing to let him do that? Some of you are like, yeah. But my question is, are you willing to embrace his solutions to your brokenness? So specifically, one of the things the New Testament tells us is that one of God's greatest acts of grace to bring healing into our lives is that of biblical community. And so the Bible talks about this all over. There are over 60 one another commandments that are given in the New Testament that explain to us how we find the healing that God desires for us oftentimes through each other. And so the Bible says that we are to bear one another's burdens. The Bible says that we are to confess our sins to one another and, and, and we are to pray for each other that we might be healed. And see, what the Bible is teaching us, you guys, is this, is that one of God's graces to bring about the healing that he desires in our life is through that of biblical community. And yet for many of us, we are unwilling to prioritize that in our lives. And I think we have to ask the question, are we really, are we really willing to let Jesus heal us in the ways that he wants to? Because are we, are we willing to embrace the solutions that Jesus has to our brokenness? Biblical community is one of them. Another example would be in the New Testament, Jesus says this. Jesus says, whoever tries to hold on to his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the Bible says that one of the ways that Jesus brings healing to us is through a radical others-centeredness. Not through a radical self-centeredness, but when we can focus on serving the needs of other people, when we start to pursue that in our lives, the Bible says that, that through that, that we start to find purpose, we start to find the meaning that God desires and intends for us, which in some of us, we would say, listen, I, I, I can't serve anyone. I can't think about anyone else because I'm so hurt and I'm so broken and I just need to fix myself first. And then after I fix myself and I get myself already, then I can start serving other people. But I think Jesus would say, that's just not the way it works. The way it works is we come to Christ in our brokenness and as broken people, we start to serve and think of others. And as we do that, as paradoxical as it might sound, in the giving of ourselves is where we find the healing that God desires. So the question is, are we willing to let Jesus, do we want to get better? Do we want to change? I'm gonna ask the band to come up and as they do, I just, I wanna leave us with this final question. And I want to allow you to have some space just to process with God about this. And so maybe you just want to take some time as we worship and sing to talk to God, to interact with him, and to answer this question that I think Jesus is asking. Do you want to get well? It takes some time to do that. And I would encourage you that as, as we're doing this, as we're kind of processing together, and as you're interacting with God on this question, I would encourage you, man, just to be honest, to talk to God and to be honest. He already knows anyway how you would answer this question. And so for some of you, as you're praying and you're talking to God, maybe your answer to this question, honestly, is no. 
Maybe honestly, in your heart, in your heart of hearts, when you think about it, do you, want, do you actually want things to change? And you're like, I don't, I don't. I honestly don't. I, I'm fine the way that things are, are. Things are manageable right now. If things were to change, that might introduce a whole lot of crazy. And maybe that's the case. And I would just encourage you, if that's the case, be honest with God. Tell him that. God, I'm not willing to change. And then maybe you want to, and I would encourage you to do this. Maybe you just want to ask this question. Why not? Why not? What is it that you're afraid of? What is it that's prohibiting you from that? For some of you, you might answer this question honestly. You, you, know, you might say, um, my answer to that question honestly is no. But, it's, I, but I want to. I want to want to. And so maybe for you, you just want to tell God that. Man, God, honestly, I don't want things to change, but I want to want things to change. And so I'm asking you if you would fix my want to so that my want to would want to. Does it make sense? And maybe for you, it's your heart. God, I, I don't, you know, it's, I, I don't, I'm not willing. I'm not, but I want to be willing. Would you, and I think, man, you're giving something, you're giving God something to work with there to introduce change in your life. And for some of you, quite honestly, right now, you're like, yes. My answer is yes. God, I want to get better. God, I don't want to live in the same place I've been in for so long. God, I believe that you can heal me in this. And maybe that's, and I would just talk to God and I would ask him, what is my next step of faith? And for some of us, maybe we've got to get connected to a life group. We talk about life groups here all the time. And the reason we push those so much is because, again, we believe that biblical community is one of the primary means of grace in which God causes real growth in our lives and real healing in our lives. And maybe for you, it's time to have an honest conversation with somebody. Maybe there's something you've been shoving down in the dark. There's been something you've been keeping a secret for so long. And man, you've just been pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Maybe it's time to have an honest conversation with someone. Take a big, bold step of faith. Say, man, God, I want healing in this area of my life. And to to be honest about that. So you do work with God. You answer this question just in this time as we worship and we pray together between you and Jesus. Let's pray. Well, God, I just want to say thank you that in your word, you didn't just give us answers Uh, but that you gave us great questions too. And uh, Father, I know that you, Jesus, you're wise and you are a good teacher and you are a good counselor. And Father, this question that we're looking at today is a really good one. It is a deeply penetrating one. It's a very convicting one because it, um, Lord, it really causes us to assess our own heart. Do we want to be well? God, I pray that even in these next moments as we interact with you and as we speak with you, Father, that you would allow us to have honesty of heart. Help us to be honest with the way that we would answer this question. But Father, I also pray that your power would work in a mighty way. Lord, I ask that this morning that maybe, um, that maybe you, would, you would provide healing to some in this room who, are, who maybe for a long time have not been willing to receive it in the areas of brokenness in their life. God, would you do that? Open our hearts. Allow us to envision a different reality than the one that we've maybe been content with for far too long. So Jesus, I pray that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would be at work inside of us. Lord, we know that you're willing. We know that you're able to do all things, Father, but oftentimes that's not the issue. A lot of times it's because we're not willing. And so Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be willing. God, help us to want to get well. Help us to want what you want for our lives. Father, because I I believe what you have in store for us is greater than anything we could ever imagine because you love us. So Father, as we interact with you, I pray you'd speak to us in these moments. I, I pray that we'd be blessed for having heard these words today. In Jesus' name, amen.